Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Those of you who watch this show regularly will have heard me say this many, many times, but for those of you who haven't, Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done maybe about 425 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you will see all the previous ones archived in many different ways. This show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. It's offered freely available, but we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of those who feel inspired to support it. So if you're one of those people, there's a donate button, a PayPal button on every page of the site. So I'm out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose. This is my eighth year coming here. It's a very enriching experience, and I usually do a few interviews while I'm out here. And in fact, my coming here is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. And this morning, uh, I noticed Deepak Chopra coming into the dining hall, and, and he's an old friend from early TM days. So I went over to say hi, and he was just sitting down to breakfast, and so I, I decided to sit down with him, and there was Tim Freak whom I've interviewed twice on Bat Yap in the past, and we always, Tim and I, really hit it off and, and felt like we were you know, friends from the start. But he lives in the UK, and we've, we've never met in person and have always wanted to. So I was delighted to see him. I sat down, and Tim and Deepak and I had a rather lively conversation for at least an hour or so. I had already eaten breakfast. Those guys were wolfing it down while we talked. And... Later on, Tim and I thought, hey, you know, we should do an interview about the stuff we were talking about. And Deepak was going to join us, but he's got a very busy schedule and he, he had to cancel. So, in any case, so Tim and I decided to go ahead, and here we are. Since Tim and I last spoke, he's written a book called Soul Story, which ordinarily I would have read cover to cover before doing an interview, but this was so impromptu that I haven't had a chance. But he's going to tell us what's in it, and judging from our breakfast conversation this morning, there are a number of very interesting topics that we would like to discuss. So, welcome, Tim. Thank you. It's a great delight to speak to you again, and yeah. to meet you in person. It's, it's fun. I must say, I think that you and I have had slightly different backgrounds, but we've kind of come around to similar perspectives, I think. We actually found our perspective differing from Deepak's a little bit even though he and I have an even more similar background than you and I because mm -hmm. of the TM background. But in the course of this interview, maybe we'll contrast um, what he was saying this morning with what you were saying, and um, I think people will find it interesting. So it's probably been four years or so since we last did an interview. How would you say that your thinking has evolved since then, if you can remember where it was at then, probably as represented by this book? This probably encapsulates or presents what you're thinking. Absolutely, it does. Yeah. It's taken a huge jump. I think, you know, I've written 35 books. Or so. This is, for me, by far the most important. Okay. Uh, I think it breaks the most new ground. And the big changes, I mean, one of the things which we discussed last time and which came out with the talk with Deepak is whether you have a form of non-duality which dismisses life as an illusion, whether it's the individual self is of no consequence, the reality is somewhere else, or whether you also value the human experience. Yes. And that's been central to me for a long while. And, and as I get pulled further and further into that, so I've got the, the non-dual and the human, mm -hmm. 
that's opened up into, well, what I want to understand for myself is how we can understand the, the cosmos itself and our role within it. So how can, we, how can I, really, from a, bring together this ancient spiritual wisdom, which still speaks to me, although I think it needs a lot of updating, and modern scientific knowledge, which also I think needs a lot of questioning, but something is amazing in there. Yeah. How, can, how can they come together? How can I understand a life in which... It is both cause and effect on the one hand and can be utterly magical and, and yeah. sublime and the nature of death. And that's what I've set out to do, to create a whole new worldview. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm at this sand conference with you is because it's about the emergent universe. That's its name. That's the theme of the conference. That's the theme. And that's the theme of this book. I think the key to it is understanding the nature of evolution and emergence. Just for fun, I'm going to try to do justice to the, the perspective that Deepak was expressing this morning. Sure. As I understood what he was saying, he was saying that everything is a human construct. The whole universe, as, as we understand it or perceive it, or even as it exists intrinsically, is a human construct. And um, that ultimately there is no universe, there is no person, there's nothing but Brahman or the Absolute, and I used the word nihilistic, and he said, yeah, people say that to me sometimes, and I thought about it afterwards, and another word I would use is that it seems, that, that perspective seems to be kind of anthropocentric, in other words, as if the universe were somehow dependent upon human perception for its existence, or as if it doesn't exist, and, and human perception somehow brings it into existence. And that always puzzled me when I heard people say things like that, because humans haven't been around that long, but apparently the universe has. And I think of humans and all beings as like sense organs of the infinite. We all share fundamentally a common consciousness or pure awareness, unbounded intelligence, whatever, that gives rise to the whole universe, and which is sort of seeing through all of our eyes, hearing through all of our ears, and so on. But... You know, we're just like little tiny peepholes through which that is shining compared to its inherent nature, you know, just unbounded, pure awareness. So it's kind of putting things backwards, it seems to me, to suggest that, I, I mean, sure, the universe as we perceive it is the best our little peephole can do, but there are vast... That's the key. Yeah, that's what the key. What you just said, there's the key. Okay. Sure, and the bat has its peephole, exactly. and the mouse has its peephole. Exactly. Right, but the intelligence itself, the totality of that intelligence contains everything and is not dependent upon all these little sense organs you can see this this battle, philosophical battle, yeah. right the way back to the Greeks, uh-huh. between people who are going, the universe is really an object, and the subject has, is a kind of an illusion which has arisen, that's modern materialism still, mm-hmm. and then the other side, idealism, or these other forms of philosophy, which um, Deepak, I think, was articulating an awful lot of spirituality, which goes, no, 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 the subject's the reality, and the object is an illusion, just mm-hmm. passing show. Yeah. And the argument is, well, just look, all you experience is experience, is obvious, can't dismiss that, mm-hmm. so all there is is experience, which feels very superficial, actually. Because this is definitely what I'm experiencing, and what I experience as a human being is to do with my eyes, to do with my ears, but also to do with my ideas, and that way it is a construct. And like you said, a bat would experience this room very differently. Right. But there is something we're both experiencing. You're experiencing this same thing from somewhere else. And within my experience, there's you. And when I go off and experience something else, I believe that you go off and experience something else too. Sure. And that there's something there. Now what's there is not this. 
this is my experience of what's there. But that doesn't mean there's nothing there. And that's, I think, absolutely key for uniting these two perspectives so that we get rid of the idea it's really the object or really the subject, and we go, it's always both. Mm. It's always the two coming together. So there is an objective nature, and one of the key ideas in the, in, the, in the new worldview that I'm exploring is an idea which is common in science now, which is the best way to see this is that we are subjectively experiencing information, which we interpret like this. And that, that, that we're going to look at an objective world, we need to understand it as information being interpreted rather than it being like this. This solidity is the way I interpret it, but there's other things which would interpret it very differently. Yeah. Last year at this conference, Deepak told a story about... We'll get off of Deepak in a few minutes, and he's not here to defend himself. See, that seems fair. He told the story about how Einstein and Rabindranath Tagore had this debate. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, one of the points in the debate was, does the moon exist if if we're not experiencing it? And Einstein said, of course it exists. And Tagore said, no, it didn't, apparently, if I'm getting the story correctly. And I played with that idea a little bit, and I thought, all right, what if everybody in the world agrees not to look at the moon? We still have tides. Very good. I love that. That is brilliant. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that what you've got there in that imaginary debate is the argument between the two poles. Right. And somehow they're both they're both pointing to something, but on their own neither are right. And for reasons like you said. The moon has its own existence. That's what makes it different to, say, a dream or something like that, where it's just images, where the image doesn't have its own existence other than as an image, whereas the moon has its own story going on. Now, it's there, it's been moving and changing, and things have been happening there, whether we observe it or not. What wouldn't exist is the moon as we experience it. We wouldn't see the white, you know, if there was no eyes, there'd be no rainbow, etc. There'd be no green, there'd be no... These things are emergent things that come with us. We change the universe, we create the universe we live in, but on the basis of something which pre-exists us. And that's really important to get that. Yeah, and while we're on this, it's just another point that I keep kicking around. Right now there's you and I in this room and three other guys that are watching this interview. And we're all seeing basically the same stuff. There's a lamp there, a lamp there, a TV there, a door there, a camera there. So obviously there's some kind of intersubjective agreement which kind of implies that there is a deeper template of the structure of things that is not just the fabrication of each individual's mind or, or perspective. There's something that exists irrespective of the perceiver. Yes. Seems to me. Yes. So this whole thing of we just create the universe as we perceive it. it maybe there's a, a collective mind that creates the, the universe as it's, as it's perceived, but certainly each individual doesn't, or we'd have complete chaos. Exactly. Do people use this kind of argument when they have this kind of discussion, and what's the rebuttal to that? I, I don't think there is one. I, I think you do end up, you, you know, people try and resist it, but you end up in what's known as solipsism, you know, that, yeah. that really all that exists is your experience. Because if you start from the argument, look, all that there is is your experience, that's what you end up with. So you're just my experience. And you're not. I don't believe that. And the, the world we're exploring has its own existence, and that's why it's so interesting. And why it's anthropomorphic, why I thought your point was absolutely on the button, is because we now know that the universe is very, very old, sure. and that consciousness, human beings, even life, is yeah. just on the tail end of it. So if we want to understand what the, the universe is, that philosophy won't work. So we need a different philosophy which can unite these spiritual intuitions, not the old one. The old one worked because the people who developed it thought the earth was flat. They had right. no idea about it. You know, this, I mean, it was a long time ago. They did a really great job a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but we need to update it radically. And then what modern science has done is just ignore it. And as 
can't address the issues. So somehow we need a different way which can take what's of value in here and the, what's of value in here and bring them together into one story. One yeah. Narrative. Okay. Just let me take a stab at this. Mm -hmm. Getting back to the peephole idea or the, or the sense organ of the infinite idea. My attitude, when I think when I look at things and when I think about things, I, I always have the feeling that God is hiding in plain sight. And that everything we see is like the body of God, as it were. Mm -hmm. And that includes us. We're part of that body. And we're sort of like sense organs. We're instruments through which the divine can be conscious of itself. And according to the capacity of our instrument, yep. uh, we may not perceive everything as God. We might misperceive it as dead or as bad or, or anything else, but the instrument can be refined and refined and refined to the point where God recognizes himself in everything. You know, Muktananda used to say, Perfect. God dwells within you as you. Yeah. And I'm not saying that the individual is God, that, which people bristle when they hear that kind of notion. I'm saying that there's nothing but God, and that God meaning infinite self-referral intelligence that through interacting with itself gives rise to all these forms and phenomena. Well, I, I love what you're saying, and it, it's absolutely central to my own thought, which is probably why we, we, we find ourselves resonating. Yeah, so let me expand on that in a slightly different way. Um, it seems to me that the, the process of cosmic evolution, of, of emergence, uh -huh. of the emergence of new things, has been a process in which things have uh, individuated, and each individual thing is both object and subject, uh -huh. right from the start. Not conscious, but object and subject, by which I mean everything is discriminate. Everything which has become a part of the whole mm -hmm. is in relationship to the whole and is, exp is, is discriminating it, right down to electrochemical discrimination, simple atomic and chemical forms of matter are discriminating the environment and have, you know, a chemical will relate in one way with this chemical, form a compound with this one, blow it with this one, and then it's being read. It's reading information, and it is information being read. Mm. And that, as that's evolving, that's becoming more and more complex. Right. So that by the time you reach life, it's now sensually yeah. reading the information. So you've got electrochemical, and then it becomes sensual. And then with us, it's arised into this realm of psyche, yeah. where we're doing it with concepts. And we're doing all of that. Right. So that we're now discriminating it. And then where Deepak's right is that we now interpret the information through concepts. And I think it's not a bad thing, which he seems to suggest it might be. I think it's a great thing. We just need to get the best concepts, because every time we get a better concept, we see a little bit more of the nature of reality, because we can discriminate. A bit like when we learned art, when we had developed eyes, we can now see the information. Yeah. And now we develop ideas, we can have ideas about what we're seeing, and see and have conversations like this sure. about it. So that's the way I see one of the, the strands of evolution, mm -hmm. is that it's happening objectively and subjectively, and that consciousness is emerging in that process yeah. so that it becomes more and more conscious more and more experiential yeah we heard a talk at the conference tonight from by Robert Lanza were mm -hmm. you there for that one whom I nabbed later on and more or less got him to agree to do an interview one of these days he was talking about biocentrism mm. and how completely unlikely and impossible essentially it would be for any kind of orderliness or intelligent life forms or anything else to have come into existence by random chance, which is what materialists seem to want to argue. Mm -hmm. 
even use the sort of inf- uh, million monkeys pounding at typewriters and hoping to produce Shakespeare. And he, and he said that if you had a million monkeys pounding at typewriters just to produce the first few words of Moby Dick, the likelihood of them doing that would take trillions of years randomly, hundreds of times older than the universe is. And so he, he has a, a kind of a brilliant argument about how there are hundreds of variables any of one of which, if it were off by a couple of percentage points, would render life impossible. Yeah, Roger Penrose estimated it. I don't know how he did it, but he did mathematically. And the number is just gigantic. Yeah. Now, how you explain that is a matter. I see. I think I don't think Robert or Deepak, their explanations don't work for me. And the reason they don't work for me is fundamentally because I disagree with them about the nature of time. Okay, so you're saying you don't agree with what Robert Lanza was saying tonight? I, I agree with that. Oh, yeah. But I don't think his explanation is correct. Okay, let's get into that. And don't let me sidetrack you. I mean, you have a, a much clearer concept, obviously, of what's in your book than I do and, and the things you want to talk about. But this is what's coming up as we sure. talk, and yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully it, it will segue into other things you want to talk about. It, for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, I actually don't have a response to what you just said, so take it from there. I mean, Okay, let's yeah. go for time. Yeah. Because that's the, when I listen to Deepak, when I listen to Robert, they're very different perspectives, certain similarities. I'm around a lot of people who see time as an illusion, as something which is unreal and you go beyond. I've probably said that myself. Probably find it in my books. If you looked at it, you'd probably go, hey, on Tim, you said this is a... <laughs> but the, as I've really sat with that over the last 10 years, I thought, I don't know what that means. Yeah. Because my method as a philosopher is just to look primarily at my experience and go, what can it show me? And what I see is whenever I look at my experience, I see experience changing over time. Mm-hmm. And that if there was no time, there'd be no experience. It's fundamental to, ev- to everything I'm conscious of. There's never been anything I was conscious of that wasn't a process of time. So I'm not talking about measurement here. I'm talking about the very nature of time. So it seems to me that that what the cosmos is, is a process, and that everything in it is a process. And in that way, everything and the cosmos itself, you and I, is made of time. So I want to suggest that we've got an analogy which is misleading in the English language which is that we say that time passes, which makes us feel like it's all gone. When I really pay attention, it seems to me that the better analogy is that time accumulates, by which I mean there are very obvious things. There's more past now than when we started this interview. There's more past now than when we first talked years ago. There's more past now than when the human body evolved, blah, blah, blah. And the past hasn't gone anywhere. Because everything that's ever happened is implicit in this moment. If it wasn't, this would not be this moment. Our meeting, our deciding to do this, our learning to speak, everything, the the Big Bang. Everything that's ever happened is implicit in this moment. So that this moment is the meeting of everything that has been and everything that could be. The past and the possible which is another word for formlessness, potentiality, something which is potential for everything but has no form, and this evolving process of form, which is time, the past accumulating. Once you get that, then it ceases to be like, oh, time, it's an illusion. You actually see the importance of this. So then you can look at the evolution of the universe, and you can see the universe itself is a process, and that the information has been accumulating. 
and that there's a tendency, therefore, as it accumulates, for it to evolve and emerge on higher and more emergent levels all the time, mm-hmm. which is exactly what we see. So that, that time itself is pushing us forward. And rather than that being a lesser thing, that's the process whereby, as you said, the source of the universe is, is manifesting at itself and it, it experiencing itself yeah. in deeper and deeper ways. I obviously only have a layman's understanding of physics, but mm-hmm. as I understand it, you know, Einstein referred to space-time. He did. And that kind of implies that it, it has some reality, some substance. It's a, it's a yep. thing of sorts. He talked about relativistic time dilation, traveling at different speeds is going to warp yep. time in different ways. If you could ride on a photon, mm-hmm. there would basically be no time in space. But, but Einstein would be one of the people that saw time as a type of illusion, that you could go backwards in time. Now, I think he's mistaken about yeah. that, because even if you had the experience of going backwards in time, it would be another moment which went after the previous moment. I mean, there's never been a moment, has there, for anyone, which didn't have two qualities. First, it had never happened before. Mm-hmm. It's a new possibility that's realized. Second, it included everything that had happened previously. That's the nature of every single experience, every single now. Includes everything that's ever happened and manifests a new possibility. So it feels like this is fundamental. So my conception of time is, is not the same as Einstein's. It may be similar to people like Rupert Sheldrake mm-hmm. and other people that talk about the Akisha. But I'm not too bad at its memory. I'm talking about actually as the Akasha. Yeah, the Akasha. Like the Akasha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that you've got not as memory, though, but actually as the past. The information of the past is implicit in the present. That's the way it looks to me. And if you've got that as a foundation, then you can understand emergence in a whole new way. And, and, And ourselves. I mean, the fact that, for me then, here's Tim, and what is Tim? He's everything that Tim's ever been, mm-hmm. meeting everything that Rick's ever been. Yeah. Now, I'm, I don't remember all that, but that's what I am. And now we're in each other. This is now part of who I will be forever, mm-hmm. because it's happened. And suddenly, rather than it being like, well, like Deepak said, oh, the past is gone. Where has it gone? It feels like, well, it hasn't. It has, and it hasn't. Yeah, it's, imp- it's, it's implicit. Contained. It's implicit in the Nothing private. is lost. Nothing right. is lost. Sure. Absolutely. And, and because nothing is lost, it feels like that's a, a key thing about why this process of evolving form is so important. So, like, your coat was made some while ago, and before that, the cotton plant or whatever yeah. it's made of was grown, and yeah. before that, there were seeds and other cotton and back, plants. And, and back, and back, and, and, and yeah, back. Yeah, it all just kind of keeps... Everything yeah. is there. So the place I want to go from there... Are you okay for me to, to roll it? I am. There's one up? more thread to the conversation okay. I want to make sure we wrap up, and that is the idea of complexification. Yep. I think it's really important. Yep. Which is that there seems to be this trend or force or tendency in the universe to evolve more and more complex forms, which would kind of go against the second law of thermodynamics, you know, that everything's supposed to just sort of become more entropic. It's kind of like a negative entropy sort of thing. So once you get the idea, look, once you go, look, objectively, what's evolving is evolution, sorry, is is information Mm -hmm. in time, and that it's accumulating. Right. So there's, when there's just hydrogen, there's this much information. By the time they get to us, there is 13 billion years of information, which gives rise to emergence. So what you see, the the essential idea of emergence, I'm sure you know, but let's just say it so everyone's on the same page, Mm -hmm. is that in that evolutionary journey, it is creative. Yes. New things arrive. More you know? and more complexity. Yeah. You know, and, s- and stars f- explode and we get, we get heavier elements. And New things. Yeah. I mean, my f- simple examples like, you know, we have hydrogen arrive and then we have oxygen arrive and then at some point for the very first time, they combine and we have water. Right. And that's f- for the first time. And then the first time there's 
like you said, start the first time there's life, the very simple form of life, like um, mm-hmm. uh, it's arising, and, and yeah, and all that stuff, and then multicellular organisms, and the first sensation, and da da da, so that you have this gradual emergence of deeper and more holistic potentialities, because there's just there's more and more information. Yeah. And it's interesting to ask, why? You know, I mean, why is that happening? Why is this greater complexity? I think because of that. Because there's more and more information. Yeah, but that, that sounds a little dry. I think it's because the divine or the cosmic intelligence or God wants to have a living experience, wants to know itself, himself, herself, as an actual living experience rather than just a sort of flat, unmanifest ocean of potentiality. There's something more to that. We can, of course, and, and information is very dry because the other side of that is the experiential, is, yeah. is that it's being experienced. All right, so let's jump to that for a second. So if I'm saying like the past and the possible, so I would, so where, where, what, what can we say about right even from the first moment, mm-hmm. the beginning of the time stream, this this thing, it's arising from what, and it feels like well you can say it's arising from. It's opposite, really. It's arising from potentiality. Yeah. So where's the universe come from? The potentiality for the universe. <laughs> you, you know, it doesn't. I don't think you can go wrong saying that. So that one of the ways we can understand that process, which is not as dry, is that the whole of the evolutionary process is the realization of potentialities on more and more and deeper and more emergent levels. Mm-hmm. And it's gone from, you know, there's a lovely line. I love it from Brian Swim. I'm, I'm cutting it short, but his basic line is. You know, what have we learned? We've learned that if you take hydrogen oh. and wait long enough, it learns to sing opera. Yeah. And I mean, that's just gorgeous. It captures it. Yeah. So for me, what the, the, the movement I'm interested in is the same one, but it's like, look, we start with primitive matter, but by 13.8 billion years later, it's arrived at you and I experiencing psyche or soul yeah. or mind or imagination, which is not made of matter. We're experiencing right now a realm which is made of images, made of meaning. Mm. It doesn't exist anywhere. I'm having ideas, but where are they? (laughs) Right now, with my body, I'm making funny noises. But you're hearing meaning, but there's no meaning in the funny noises. So we've gone from from matter to mind. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens with science in the mainstream is it goes oh right so and then we reach you know the brain and the body and then there's this thing which is a side effect thing meaning the mind yeah the mind consciousness yeah. the soul right you know they're all words for the same thing and when the brain dies that's the end of that yeah spirituality on the other hand most of spiritual traditions say no 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 that the, the soul or, or mind there's a whole domain there it's a domain we domain we go to when we die and it's something we've fallen from mm-hmm. it's a, it's a primal place we've fallen into this what i'm interested in is is challenging both of those and saying to science look the science started with the idea of evolution with Darwin and Wallace. It was, a, it was a biological thing. Oh, my God, all of the variety of life has come from simple life. Amazing idea. Then, 100 years ago with Big Bang Theory, they went, oh, my God, the whole universe has evolved. Mm-hmm. All things evolved. Not just life, but everything has evolved. Yeah. So before there was the biological evolution, there was all the material evolution. Mm-hmm. Well, what about if actually there's, we need to see a third phase of evolution after the biological evolution, which is a whole nother domain, which is the domain of soul or mind or psyche or imagination, mm. not as a side effect, but as a whole emergent level of reality, so that it's emerged as matter, life, 
and then soul. And the, it's what we're experiencing right now. The non-physical domain has opened up. So that what I want to say to, to, to science is, look, there's this third domain, and what I want to say to spirituality is, how about if it's not that soul pre-exists the whole thing, mm-hmm. but that everything, literally everything in form, has evolved. And that what this domain that, that spirituality has is, is been exploring is, the, is actually just the most emergent level which has come last in that process, which has opened up through the evolutionary process so that the uh, soul dimension, or whatever you want to call that, has arisen through this accumulation of more and more past. Okay, so when you say soul, are you talking about individual souls or are you talking about soul with a capital S or okay. uni- universal soul? So I'm wanting to use, the, I'm wanting to use all these words because they've got different uh, meanings to different people and because they have different qualities and to say look what I'm interested in people can use words however they like but what I'm interested in is just pointing to the experience we're already having mm-hmm. so I'm experiencing body sensation and I'm experiencing imagination or psyche or soul or mind whatever name you give it that if you go into that which I'm sure you've done in meditation or power plants or shamanic journeying or 101 things there's a whole universe out there to explore and what I'm suggesting is that that has arisen as a, a collective domain just like this is a collective domain so that each domain is a collective domain individually experienced and the same the same with the imagination so rather than it being oh just imagination Imagination is the taking of experiences and then turning it into images. So when I think, for instance, I'm imagining speaking. Mm-hmm. When I dream, I'm imagining. So that the, this, this realm of soul is the result of the process of evolution and is a deeper reality. Not an illusion at the end, but the most emergent uh, level that the universe has got to yet, which is why it's the latest thing. Okay, so I guess what I was puzzling about was you almost seem to be implying that consciousness, if that's what you meant by soul, is... Uh, it's you know. not what I mean by soul. Okay, because we think of ordinarily, of co- we, our, our, us types, think of consciousness as primordial and everything arising from that. Yeah, so I, yeah. I can't I challenge that for myself as well, uh-huh. because I, it feels to me that consciousness in the sense of knowing it with knowledge can with knowing. Well, that's knowing what, something. But, but, it, but that fact that I'm conscious now and when I sleep I'm not, or, mm-hmm. or that the, the chair isn't conscious, that, that's a, an emergent quality. So where it's coming from, this potentiality, I'm not sure the best word, you can call it what you like, but I'm not sure the best word is consciousness. Maybe being, because it just is, yeah. potentiality, but it becomes conscious. And it's not just conscious that's in soul. Okay. First, it's conscious in, in biology. Mm-hmm. The first thing is this consciousness, like looking. I see the world, sensation, that's the yeah. first thing. And then this other level of, of, of consciousness, which is imagination or soul. Mm-hmm. And now we're on another level. It's not made of matter, it's made of images. Now, what I want to suggest, and it's a big jump for science, is that that domain which is opened up is the domain in which we survive the death of the body and which has developed as an emergent reality. So once there was no biology, and then that whole area of biology emerged, a huge domain of biology and then from that has emerged this other domain which is a domain of soul Mm. and it's information on another level it's all information yeah and that the soul level is a level in which uh, there's no death there's no death because 
there's nothing to die. It's not made of matter. So you're saying here that the ancient religions at their best didn't know 2,000 years ago? What I'm trying to do is take what they knew 2,000 years ago mm-hmm. and put it in an evolutionary context. So rather than it being a fall from a great state that we were this huge mistake, we fell into this and we've got to get out, that actually it's the other way around. That it has emerged from this mm-hmm. and it's the cutting edge of a, of a process. So there's been no mistake, there's been no fall. What's happening is we're reaching further and deeper into it so that as we go deeper into soul and we can talk about awakening and God in relationship to this in a minute, that more and more emergent possibilities are arising. So if you like, I'm saying with relation to death, I'm saying, look, heaven has evolved. Because it's the imagination. But not the imagination as an unreality, but as a deep reality. So if you look at the thing, I wrote a book years ago about the history of how people saw heaven, mm-hmm. and you can see it evolving. It's, it's not that heaven's evolving. If there is a the, heaven, that it's people's understanding of it evolves. Well, I'm actually suggesting it has evolved, a bit yeah. like sensation evolved. Mm-hmm. So there was no blue, and then there was blue, and then there was, there was other colors, and, we, and there was hearing. And well, you're kind of getting back to Deepak's point, which is that Objective reality somehow depends upon our understanding or ability to experience it. How we experience it depends, how we interpret the information. And as we interpret it in deeper and deeper ways, more and more emerges. Not just for, for me, but for everyone. You know, as, we, as we experience it on deeper levels, as it experiences itself, to mm-hmm. use what you said, on deeper levels, yeah. more and more emerges. So there was once no ideas. And then there was the first idea. And then ideas have gone... (laughs) Just like biology went... (laughs) And now there's a whole domain of ideas. And that's the collective soul. Carl Jung's explored it. All those people explored it. Which now has an existence. And so that what we experience at death has also evolved. So you can see the first, like the Greeks, it's shades, it's hardly there. Then you get uh, projections of life, happy hunting grounds, or the drinking halls of Valhalla. Or, and then when they get the great religions, you get all oh, lands full of Buddhas. And, and now when you listen to Endies, it's everything. You just get a, a, yeah. a, a vista of, of... So like a dream, but not as a... Not in the pejorative sense of it's just a dream, but actually going... It is the most emergent level of reality mm-hmm. in which we can experience things in this really beautiful, fluid way because we're in a world of images rather than this more constrained way because this is in a world of more rigid form. Yeah. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? I think it does. Uh, okay. Let me bounce it back to you, make sure I have it. So, as um, I understand what you're saying, somebody 2,000 years ago who dies... Well, first of all, we're kind of talking about the existence of of some realm you might go to after you die, which many people might not accept, but let's presume that there is such a thing. Yeah, as an emergent reality. Yeah, many people listening will will take that for granted anyway. Sure. Uh, But if you don't, then just use it as a thought experiment. What you're saying is that somebody dies 2,000 years ago, they're going to go to a Motel 6 in the sky, whereas if somebody dies now, it might be a a Hilton or, (laughs) you know, a a Ritz-Carlton or something, that that the actual The world of images has has got bigger. It is also evolving. a richer place. It's the imagination which we can enter into, and it's getting richer and richer and more and more past. The more the past evolves, the more information. So as we evolve as conscious beings, we kind of evolve or contribute to the enrichment of the possible realms of experience that we could explore. Because everything we experience becomes part of the past. So that's there now. Everything that's come into form has come into form forever and is now part of the repertoire of the universe. Could be. 
I can accept that as a working hypothesis. That I, what it's it an does, interesting thing to yeah, contemplate. And what it does, and, and, and that's a good thing. You know, it's like, hey, well, look, who knows? You know, I don't know. The premise. Let me. We should say that right at the stop. The premise for me. It starts my book. It starts every talk I give. Is look. This is an awesome mystery. Yeah. I don't know anything. I don't know anyone who knows what this is. What I do think is that in that mystery, we need to find the best explanation we can. Mm -hmm. And that's the job of philosophy. And that's, I happen to be a philosopher. So my my job, my job is to find the best. And so what it needs is is an explanation which can unite these two things. So once you've got one, what's that done is it's gone, look, this domain now, which spirituality is exploring, Mm -hmm. has a reality and is part of an evolving universe that starts with matter, through life and it is is arrived at soul mm. and that these intuitions we have about meaning on the lower levels there is no meaning in that way because it's arisen later it's deeper this idea of immortality you can start framing it in a really interesting way like you can go okay so really what are we asking we're asking this experience i'm having right now this disembodied experience of imagination and i'm having this embodied experience of sensation when the embodied experience of sensation stops because the body's not functioning mm-hmm. does this stop as well mm-hmm. or does that continue is it possible that that can continue because if it's impossible like science says like materialism says then that's it if you get the information thing this is i don't wanna, i hope it's not too crude an analogy but it, it's a quick way of getting it across if you see that everything is information on different levels when I wrote my book, when I did Soul Story, I worked, wrote on a computer. And so it looked like the book, the information, was on the computer. Oh, and seen the cover here, Soul Story. Little plug. A bold response to the soul crisis in modern culture. So when I wrote this bold response, mm-hmm. the information looked like it was on the computer in a particular place. Right. So if I drop coffee on the computer, book's gone. But, of course, I'm smart enough. It was actually being backed up on the cloud. Right. So the information was on the cloud. So if you destroy the computer, the book wasn't gone. Right. So that's the sort of analogy I'm playing with information on two different levels. So clearly, at the moment, it's linked to the processing of my brain. You know, if you give me a sleeping tablet, I'll go unconscious. You hit me on the head, I could lose the function to speak or blah, blah, blah. But also, all of that information is on this other level because I'm not seeing the psyche as a byproduct of anything. I'm seeing it as a domain in its own right, yeah. like spirituality does. Sure. I mean, uh, I've heard discussions among physiologists and so on who say that we don't really know how memories are stored in the brain or anything else. Oh, we don't. And it moves you in the direction of you know, using like a television analogy where you, you know, if you're watching television and you're, you're, you're seeing you know, Bonanza an old Bonanza episode, you're not going to find that if you take apart the television. It's not in there. The television is just a physical apparatus for presenting information to us that exists in a a different realm altogether. And that would account also for like past life memories and stuff. Then you can. Then you've got the idea. Then of okay, so so we exist now as a as everything is as, as a stream of time. Mm-hmm. So here I, it's what I call the soma stream, the body soma. You know, there's a body stream, but also I'm experiencing this other thing, which is a soul stream, which is a stream of images. So if that continues after this ends, yeah. then it's moving. Then two types of information are moving into and out of like a psychosomatic relationship. Mm-hmm. Which makes you see incarnation, which on the face of it sounds like a nutty idea, becomes much more like, I don't know, like a tuning in your phone via Bluetooth to your 
speaker. It's like there's information of two distinct things yeah. coming into relationship with each other and moving out of relationship to each other. But they've all been part of one evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. There's no fall from some perfect state. Everything's reaching towards the more emergent state. Yeah. And I don't know if this notion of a fall from a more perfect state does justice to all the ancient philosophical or religious traditions. You would know better than I. Oh, of course, you, it, it can't possibly do justice to them because they're rich and, and, and deep. Yeah. But there is a fundamental, it's not in everything, but it's pretty common. And you can understand why. Mm-hmm. Because people are waking up, they're experiencing this deeper reality, mm-hmm. and then they've got this. Yeah. Now, they've got no notion of the evolutionary process they've got, you know, that we have got today, and they're seeing it, therefore, as there's a better state, and we've fallen into this. So they're prejudicing the soul as more real. I'm also saying that. Yeah. I'm also saying soul is more real, but I'm saying it's more real because it is the, most le- the, it's the latest thing to have emerged. It's the deepest potential. But as I understand it, like probably the Vedic tradition and maybe some others do have the idea that evolution through many, 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 many lives, that not, the, not that you've fallen from something, but that you've started out at a fairly low state and are just working your way up from rocks to vegetables to, you know, <laughs> yeah. little animals. That's, to, the, that's the paradox. Because you go to the ancient going. traditions, they've got a very, I mean, the evolution is really a spiritual idea. They do have that sense, yes. But with the soul itself, usually you get this idea that we fall in into the illusion of Maya, we've become enmeshed in it. I mean, the, the traditions are various, yeah. and you see different th- different strands in them. So there is off, there is sometimes an evolutionary strand. You're right. You're right. The, the key thing is, do we see that final thing, soul, this mm-hmm. dimension? Is that something which has emerged through that process? And if you take the incarnation map, the the, the transmigration of the soul, mm-hmm. Pythagoras, then that is implied by that. Actually, I yeah. think that's right. When I mention ancient traditions, it's not that I'm saying that, well, the truth must be found in these ancient traditions. Sure. Truth is whatever it is, regardless of the degree to which any tradition has been able to understand it. Yep. Maybe some of them underst- understood, maybe some of them more closely approximated the reality than others, and we could find some pretty clear hints in those, but it may be something quite other than any of them have, have understood. I mean, what's so lovely about the, about the evolutionary emergent idea whether it's from ancient Hinduism or Pythagoras or from now, is it links everything together. Yeah. Because right now I'm surrounded by all of those levels. There's primitive matter in all of its forms. Mm-hmm. There's biology in, around me. And, and then there's soul happening. Yeah. And it's all here. And I have to live with all of that. I have to live with an emergent universe. Mm-hmm. So I have to live with my bodily needs, whether I like it or not. I have to live it with cause and effect, whether I like it or not. Yeah. And then there's this other realm where I'm free to just journey the universe in my imagination mm. and go off and, and explore. Stephen Hawking. <laughs> with, but with very different conclusions. Yeah, different conclusions for sure. Um, okay. Okay, so this is David Buckman. He's here at Sand, and he has a question he wants to throw in. Yeah, just wondering about the question of cycles, though. You, you, mm-hmm. You're proposing a fairly linear process with the evolution, but most of nature runs in cycles. I'm not saying for one minute, accumulation, I think what I tried to say was it has a tendency towards greater emergence, but in every direction, and everything is still evolving. So it's not like, well, it just all led to us. These are the big kind of stepping stones, which you can see. But everything on every level is still evolving. And within that, yeah, of course, there's, there's constant cycles. But what's, what, what it looks to me is that the cycles 
going round is more like a wheel going forward because spiral. because yeah or a spiral <laughs> so that it's the fall again yeah. just like it was last year but this fall is different because it includes last fall and next fall will be different because it will include this one. You mean autumn? Uh, first one, I, I was thinking the fall of Adam or something. I, so I was trying to be American. I was, I was really trying to be American there. I, yeah, we thought, call it autumn I could say we, autumn. We, can, we could call it fall. Can we call it autumn? Or autumn, either oh, one. So we can do English. We use right. both, both words. And I was trying so hard. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, cycles. I was we thinking, never okay, call it fall. From some high thing down. Okay, yeah. So all I'm trying to say is that those cycles exist within a greater process that through the... Through the the basic fact of the accumulation of the past means that every new cycle includes the previous cycle. It doesn't just go round. It goes round and accumulates through that process. Yeah, so it's like a progressive thing. Yeah. So, um, let's get back to God. You said you wanted to get back to God. We all want to get back to God, right? Uh, no, I don't want to get back to God. I want to get forward to God. Okay. And that's a key idea, where the book ends up, and it's a big idea for me, and it's something which I've been sitting with for a long time, which is the problem of God. I experience, I have done since I was a little boy, a relationship with and being part of an expression of something which is full of goodness, full of love. It's just an ecstatic relationship. You know, I love reading Rumi because it reminds me of that. You can just, oh, that beloved. The problem, obviously, which is a the devil theologists and the, the theologians and philosophers forever is the classic problem of evil if you've got a good god and he's at the beginning of time if whatever you know disappear the christian god just have a whatever imagination you want you've still got why is the world like this really why is it you know how how come babies get aids and die horribly what is going on with a process that involves such suffering I have an answer. Okay. <laughs> do you want to do, throw in yours first, and yeah. then I'll give you mine? Yeah, just that if you're going to have a relative creation, then by definition, there have to be pairs of opposites. Yeah. And so... I've, I've said that and written know. that in my books. Yeah. And do you know what? When I look at a baby dying of AIDS, it's not good enough. Because that being of love and goodness, if it's all-powerful and it's allowing that, I don't like it. This is not a God I like. This is a God I want to have words with. And then the other thing we've got on top of that is the, what now is what I call the problem of absurdity. It's like what we know about the evolutionary process is so, you know, it is amazing, but it's also kind of really crazy. So, you know, if God wants to get to us waking up to soul and da-da-da, 120 million years of dinosaurs ripping the hell out of each other, five extinction, this God's mad and He's indecisive. Patient. He's patient. got all time in the world. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, He's not in the rush. And, and kind of crazy. Maybe. He's creative. So how about this idea? I mean, how Jurassic about, Park was a pretty good movie. Well, that was a good movie, but it's an awful long time. Just out, you know, It's like, what is that? Look at how long it took to develop a planet in, on which there could be any kind of life. Indeed. Billions of, I mean, Indeed. yeah, billions of years. Indeed. So the whole process seems to make a lot more sense. For me, mm-hmm. if I take the, the more scientific view of, look, there is no great being making this happen. This may be an express... This is not happening because there's some loving being making it happen, it's just happening. So what I want to suggest is that the mistake we've made is to put that being of love, that transcendent God, at the beginning of time. And actually we need to put it at the end, or rather it, it is what we're moving towards. So that where it's arising from is non-dual, non-form potentiality which is on everything, 
It's unconscious. It's unformed. It's not in time. It is potentiality. That's where it's arising from, and that's with us all the time. It's arising from that. And as the form is arising and, the, and, and these potentialities are being realized in deeper and deeper ways, the deepest thing comes last. So the first thing that's arising is matter, and then life, and then soul. Where does and matter then, arise from? Well, it's, a, it's the potentiality forming itself as information. And what is that potentiality? That's what I'm, I'm calling it just potentiality because I think we, we can't describe it as anything else. I mean, we can use the traditional word like spirit or Brahman or these ideas, but it's Brahman without qualities. It's Sanguna. It's, it's not this being of love. So the questions that I raised of absurdity or the problem of evil, the traditional problems, these don't arise because what it's, what it's doing is it's just manifesting, realizing potentiality. Where it's going is towards the realization of deeper and deeper potentialities. And that what is happening at the leading edge, and you said this at the start, which is why I wanted to come back to it, is that that potentiality is realizing and experiencing itself through the evolving, emerging time streams. The point now, it is not only experiencing soul, and I think you said if we're ready or if if we've reached a certain place, we reach a place where that consciousness in soul can reflect back on itself and go, oh, my depths, what I, what I really am, the, the root of my being, is the being of everything, is the source of everything. At which point, this unconscious oneness from which it's arising is become conscious oneness. And so we've gone from unconscious oneness... yeah, Because it really hasn't ever become anything other than what it has always been and, all, and always is. But in terms of our experience... In, in a, no, I'm not saying that. No. I'm personally, I think that the whole point why this is so important mm-hmm. is because it is manifest or realizing itself. And as it does that, it is becoming conscious of itself. First as increasing levels of form, mm-hmm. and then at a certain point as formlessness itself. So that when we become conscious of the oneness, that potentiality of spirit is becoming conscious through us. So and in like doing so, God is evolving. You're saying. Yes. Yeah. And the, the leading edge mm-hmm. is that this whole universe, the fruit, God is the fruit as well as the root. But the root is unconscious potentiality, and it is arising as conscious potentiality, and it's unity, and that is love. So the, the place I want to go to, and I probably need to say a little bit more to, to make sense of that, but what I want to end up at saying is, look, just as all of these cells, which are individuals, got it together at some point and made one thing called Tim, a communion of cells to create something which includes and transcends them all, so that there is a communion of souls arising when we realize oneness, which is God, which is the transcendent spirit of love, and that is coming into being. As we ourselves evolve through the process of living and dying, living and dying, it is coming into greater and greater existence so that the universe is actually God coming into being in the fullest possible way. Mm. Well, we're talking about one little planet here out of trillions of inhabited planets probably in, the, in maybe in this universe and there may be infinite numbers of universes. Absolutely right. And all those planets in all those universes are at different levels of evolution. Yep. And yet the intelligence which contains all of it and through interaction with itself gives rise to all of it you would almost be saying that that intelligence is at different stages of its evolution in different little areas yeah uh, or, or, or throughout you know, some areas, areas. 
Some areas are asleep, some areas are awake. Sure. But, but that's exactly what we've got around us, isn't it? Already. There's yeah. areas where sure, there's the mattress more sleep. The, the, you know, the plant is more, and there's you and me. And, and so we've got that already. That's exactly what we've got. And when the more emergent arises, the other doesn't disappear. No. It's just the more emergent inc- transcends and includes it. Yeah. So that, there are said what's to be realms which are just all celestial realms. The houses are made of celestial material. Everything is enlightened. The rocks are enlightened. There, if there are rocks, it just everything is just brimming with celestial life. So very awake, alive place. Total sattva, no tamas. And then there are other places which are sort of dull and dark and repressed. You know, but again, it's pockets. This pocket's very bright. This pocket's very dim. And I wonder if that even matters in terms of the grand totality of things. You know, whether the grand totality is actually waking up as a whole or whether it just sort of has like effervescence going on. I, I think it. both. Hmm? I think all of that is what's happening within form. But as it wakes up to essence, to its be- to being, yeah. that we are coming into that something which transcends at a new level. So that just as these, we can see these completely new emergent levels arising, the most dramatic of which is soul, mm-hmm. because it's not made of matter, that is leading to something which transcends and includes all soul. Mm-hmm. And the image which, which is very powerful for me with this is the experience which is reported again and again of uh, the love light at death. Or the I love the translation in the Tibetan Book of the Dead where it says it's the, um, the luminosity of potentiality. So there's the luminosity of potentiality. The traditional idea, which is often said, is that the idea, again, the kind of negative view, in my opinion, is you've got to dissolve into it. So there it is. Now let it all go and just go back to the oneness. That feels completely wrong to me. That feels like the opposite. It seems to me that we are conscious through our individuality, that only through subject and object, through to developing greater and greater individuality do we develop greater and greater consciousness, so that the goal, for want of a better word, is actually the opposite, to not dissolve into it. Because if you dissolve into the potentiality, actually you go unconscious, we do it every night. But if you can hold, like in meditation... You mean like when you die? Yeah, so that the, the forming of the soul, which is what we're doing now and always doing, Again, is not some mistake we have to let go of and dissolve, but actually we're build, we're forming ourselves because we're made of all we experience, the past. We're forming ourselves into into a more and more uh, robust individuality, which can actually enter into consciousness of the formless yeah. and stay conscious. I think that's consistent with what people like Michael Newton would say. Uh-huh. You know, Michael Newton. I don't. He was a hypnotherapist who was regressing people back to past lives, and then accidentally started regressing them back to the period between lives and then specialized in that and did thousands of people that way oh, and, I know and, and mapped out the similarities between their stories which were kind of remarkable and was able to provide a description based on the collective experience of the kind of terrain that one encounters when they die and the general idea is not that you just sort of merge back into total oneness but that you you come away with the knowledge you gained in this life and the, the you know an assessment of the lessons you've learned and you know you set up your next situation based upon the ne- lessons you need to learn so it's a very active kind of engaged kind of process not just a sort of a there might be a rest period where you just sort of chill for a while um, <laughs> that sounds good I, like, yeah. I look forward to that yeah just kind of kick back 
So I, that sounds very congruent with it. But so there's an image which somebody when I was writing the book actually, a woman I met randomly at a, an event, different event I was going to came up and started telling me her near-death experience, which mm-hmm. captured it perfectly in an image, which she said, what I saw were souls like sparks going into the light and falling away. And the light was all the sparks. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it feels like, yeah, that, that transcendent being of love, which is emerging as the fruit of this evolutionary process, we are all filaments Components of that. Of that. Yeah. When we come together, just like when all of this comes together, you get Tim, you get the body, when souls enter unity consciousness, mm-hmm. this greater thing emerges. Just like a, si- a cell can't possibly know what it's like to be Tim, I can't know what it's like to be God. Right. But what I can know is what it's like to commune in God. I know exactly what that feels like. Mm-hmm. And it feels like love. It's the deepest thing I ever experienced. And the reason that the world isn't full of it is because it's the newest thing. It's, it's, it's the rare. thing which is not just Relatively. rare, because it's emerging last. It didn't start with love, it's ending with love. Mm-hmm. It started with the hydrogen. <laughs> it's ending with love yeah. and justice and compassion and empathy. And I think people throughout history have experienced it, but they've been rather uncommon. And now we hopefully are entering into an age in which they're becoming more common. Of course. I'm not saying you know, yeah. it's only arising now. Right. It's been arising through, through developing through human history. Yeah. But it is, in terms of the evolutionary scope of 13.8 billion years... Mm-hmm. It is these deeper qualities arise last. In human culture, the same thing. The human Mm -hmm. culture has been on this huge journey which has allowed us to soften and deepen Mm -hmm. and find compassion and things which really weren't very... They were individuals. Yeah. Very small groups of individuals. Being an historian, the thing that strikes me is how crazy people are when they think the past was good. Because it was brutal and difficult. I know. And full you of suffering. Toothache. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. no dentists. Just right. that. Yeah, even that. Yeah. Whew. I mean, George Washington had a miserable time. You know, he had wooden false teeth. The, you know, Napoleon had hemorrhoids. Really tough. <laughs> no wonder people thought this was a mistake and we should get out. Yeah. Because it's like, let's get back to that place where it's just images. That's great. That we can make it. It becomes heavenly there. But yeah. here, it's tough. But we've transformed it. And one of the ways we've transformed it, and this is a little tiny idea, but I, it's one of my favorites, I like it. If you get that it, think the image of this evolution of heaven, if you like, or the, the sorrow, then what we're doing, we're doing it right now, is every time you have a good idea and you make it a reality, you bring a little bit of heaven to earth. You actually reach up into that domain, you find something beautiful, and then you bring it here. So there's my little heaven to earth and my book. Someone did me jacket, that's very nice. Someone did the microphone, yeah. that's really good. And we're bringing it here. That's true. I mean, everything is created. A bridge, a building. Everything. I can't see anything apart from from your body. Yeah. What is there? Started as ideas and and creativity, and it was channeled into into a specific concrete thing. Because that's where the evolution's happening now. The biological evolution is far too slow. Some ideas are channeled into bombs and implements of torture. And then it's the opposite, yeah. Yeah. But that, I wouldn't say, is a channeling of heavenly qualities, no, no, heavenly intelligence, sure. or rather the hellish, darker, exactly. you know, Rakshasa levels exactly. of, of creation. And you can see, it's like, I know you have a real interest, in, I'm looking, going to look forward to your presentation on non-duality and ethics yeah. and enlightenment, because I think what, one of the insights which, which comes to me from that process mm-hmm. is that what we see as evil or bad, even in the, in the, in the grand sense now, mm-hmm. is simply where we've been that we, we need to have left behind in the process. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I've, I think is if you take you know, the epitome of evil for most people, the, you, know, you say, who's an evil man? Adolf Hitler's an evil man. Right. And God knows he did evil things. But actually, if he'd lived at the time of Alexander, he probably would have been Adolf the Great or Charlemagne. 
we'd look back on him. Because people were celebrated for doing the kind of thing. Yeah, because he was a great conqueror. You know, conquered a whole area. Okay, right. he lost. They lost too. But he, knew, you know, he, he conquered this year. Mm. But because it was in the 20th century, it's like we we'd reached a point to leave that behind. That kind of the horrible, violent, nationalistic thing which the Romans did and the Greeks did. Yeah. And it's like, enough! Yeah. And so that now becomes something which is repugnant to us. That's because we're reaching a deeper and deeper understanding all the time. Our standards are evolving. Yeah. The, I mean, even that's what's going on in the United States, I mean, there are a lot of things that were tolerated 50, 100 years ago. Yeah. All sorts of the way women are treated, black people are treated. Huge so on, differences. That are, and gay people. Yeah. That are all changing quickly and have changed a lot. I mean, I think it's hugely important to see that, Rick, because a lot of people think that everything's going horribly wrong. And, of course, there's huge problems yeah. and things. That, but the fact is... If you take the bigger sweep, I mean, mm-hmm. things can go horribly wrong and cultures can collapse. Sure, I mean, climate change but could kill everybody on the could, planet yeah. by the end of the century. Jeez, you know, all sorts of things are right. worrying. But see, from the overall sweep, right now, mm-hmm. we still live in the most peaceful time in the whole of history. The role of, like you said, of women and different races have been completely <laughs> transformed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable what we've done. Uh, we live healthier. The evolution of soul has led to the evolution of, of the world in the most incredible ways. Yeah. Just the fact that Europe's been at peace for the first time ever. Just that. Yeah, it's funny. We've somehow segued from this really abstract philosophical discussion about yeah. the, the nature of God and, man, and you know the mechanics of manifestation and the purpose of, of creation and all that stuff into talking about so, the evolution of social issues in the 21st, 20th century. Because they're all linked. Because <laughs> yeah. they're all the same thing. <laughs> let's do purpose. Let's just, end, you know, let's just touch that. One of the things that's repugnant to science is the idea that the universe has a purpose because right. that puts a big man at the front going, I intend this, and yeah. they don't want that. And I don't want that. It, it implies some sort of sentience yes. to, the, to the laws of nature and the functioning of development of the exactly. universe. Exactly. Yeah. But once you go, look, it's not so much the universe has a purpose, it's more like the purpose is inherent in its nature. Because what the universe is, is the realization of ever more emergent potentialities. That's what it is. And the accumulation of time and the emergence of more... So here we are. So what's our purpose? Well, that... So you and I are also, and we're doing it in this conversation, looking to realize the most emergent ideas that we can find. And then you want to bring those into the world. And then in social issues, it becomes the same. Okay, what's the most emergent solution we can find to these problems we now face? Rather than leave it in some enlightened la-la land, how can we engage with the evolutionary process with greater consciousness so that you get an enlightenment which is totally about the life process, is about embodying it is about coming in and then with this great love which is arising how can you take that great love which arises in unity consciousness and share it and bring it into so it so it starts to permeate the rest of the universe and that's what we're doing that's what we're starting to do let's be realistic that's what we're starting to do what's coming to mind is that you know, there are any number of things which could do us in, climate change being one of the most uh, yeah. likely mm-hmm. in terms of how devastating it could be. Yeah. But then there's the potential of nuclear war, starting with North Korea, the potential for incredibly virulent viruses to, to emerge. Antibiotics is, you know, yeah, just antibiotics have failure of antibiotics is ineffective. Huge, there's not yeah. too many that work anymore. And uh, genetic engineering, something you're just trying wrong. to cheer us up to your yeah. with, aren't you? Here, <laughs> <laughs> life sucks, then you die. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. But um, what I'm leading to Actually. is that I have a sense from just my own personal observation, which is totally unscientific, that 
there's a counterbalancing force which is rising to meet those challenges. Yes. Yes. And uh, we're seeing it in the proliferation of awakening and interest yes. in spirituality and, and all that stuff. And many people might say it's a, a David and Goliath kind of situation because the problems are so big and huge, but look who won that battle. And the reason I think that this, this David of, of rising consciousness has a chance against the Goliath of the you know, multinational corporations and the nuclear threat and the climate change and all that is that the subtle is more powerful. Yes. And this is something very subtle. Yeah. It's operating at a more causal level. It's because it's more emergent. Yes. The more emergent is more powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's the future. It just is, because the more emergent is always the future. It's what's going to grow. And so we've got this situation now where this, the, the leading edge is awakening. That's the leading edge of this 13.8 billion years of evolution. Mm-hmm. It's still small, but it's happening to more and more people. Yeah. As that happens, this connectivity, this, this, this love comes in. And it is, you said about your personal experience, here's a confession. Really, all this grand philosophy mm-hmm. is a way for me to have a, a rational, robust understanding to underpin the intuitions which arise for me in the deep awake state, yeah. which are actually really childish right. or childlike. And I'd say the things are like a fundamental insight, the feeling of, look, despite all the suffering, life is essentially good. Mm-hmm. Death is safe. Yeah. And what really matters is love. And what this philosophy allows me to go is, yeah, that's right. Death is safe. What matters is bringing in this deeper thing, which is love. And it is fundamentally good, not because there's no suffering, but because that's where it's going. It's always, and that, the fact that it's moving towards the greater good mm-hmm. redeems the past because it leads to something better. Just like a terrible thing that happens to you and then you tell it as a funny story because it worked out all right. If we're moving towards, ever towards the more emergent, towards the good, then there's reason for an intense optimism. And I can't throw that optimism off. No, it's neither. huge in me. Yeah. People have been doing what we're doing for thousands of years, you know, just spinning philosophies to try to understand and make make sense of their experience, to articulate their deeper desires and and conceptions and feelings for the way things work and so on. So I think it's a natural human thing to do that. We need them. We have to have stories. We need to never lose touch with the mystery. Never get certain. Always have doubt. Tons of doubt. (laughs) Doubt everything. I spend my whole time doubting everything I say. And then find the thing which holds up the best and hold with that until you find something better. And then hopefully the, the, you know, the next generation picks it up and goes, that's not good enough, how about this? Right now, we need a new understanding which can bring in these more emergent possibilities. We need that, and it needs to link deep wisdom with scientific knowledge. So this conversation, which, I mean, anything I'm contributing, it feels like just the beginning of the beginning, and there's, of course, loads of other people doing it. That, but that between us, we can establish something whereby this stuff, which otherwise gets dismissed as woo-woo, can come in with power and go, no, this is not. This is saying something important and real, and it links as one thing. So our human understanding is no longer split down the middle, but can actually be one narrative. I think it's essential in order for this stuff we're talking about to um, be most um, influential in impacting the culture, that people like ourselves and others really do learn how to articulate it and not only between ourselves uh, but also between disciplines and across the divide from pure spirituality to pure science which is what this conference is about exactly right because science is the the dominant and and most influential form of knowledge in the world I don't think that it's going anywhere. It works in many ways. Yep. So spirituality isn't going to just do a sort of an end run around it. The problem for spirituality, uh-huh. it seems to me, Rick, is that science has just 
taken off. I mean, it's just evolved at such a rate. Yeah. And spirituality hasn't kept up. It's still living. It's true. There's an imbalance. It's way back in the past. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of stuff in the past. Great. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it's not. It's out of date. And it needs to rapidly catch up. And then it can stand on its own terms and the two can join. And there are people who are helping it do that. There are. Yeah. Many people. people here. Good people. Maybe we're helping a little Good bit. Good people. And hopefully we can help a little bit too. Yeah. And obviously, even though science has, is so powerful and has progressed so much in the last few hundred years, it's... Um, obviously a really mixed blessing you know it's so dangerous the things it's given us the weaponry the um, various other things that are impacting the the environment so severely so there's something missing in science which it desperately needs in order to be more benign very good point more beneficial and I think spirituality has exactly what it needs exactly and on the flip side Science has something that spirituality needs, which is a, a sort of a rigorous, empirical, systematic approach, so that spirituality doesn't get lost in woo-woo and imagination and new age ooga booga, but um, required to be pragmatic and it has and to it has to be willing results. to yeah it has to be a rational, really strong questioning, so that the the story that I've been creating and it is a narrative, yeah. it's a conceptual narrative, it can't be anything else. Mm-hmm. It's about well, primarily, I have to say for me, about saying, look, this is my experience of life, which I said at the start, varies from synchronous magic to causal, banal, repetitive physics that coexists. And my explanation is to go, well, these are different domains which coexist, in which we have the soul domain, in which, which is full of meaning, and which events happen which are synchronous, and we have this other thing it's come from which is cause and effect, and then it becomes one thing. And if we can get ah, that... Yeah, then... I love that one thing bit. I, I have a feeling, I've said this before, that in a few hundred years from now, I don't know how long, but maybe let's say a couple hundred years, it'll seem kind of quaint that there used to be these two streams of knowledge, science and spirituality, and that they were considered different and perhaps at odds with one another, that there will have evolved, hopefully, a kind of a unified endeavor, which will include the best of science and spirituality and much more that will have evolved by then. And it'll just be the sort of, you know, this is how we, we learn and progress more and more with this thing that involves these subjective technologies and these objective technologies, and they're not at all in conflict. They complement one another and... And, you know, maybe I'm biased here, but because it's the more emergent, Mm -hmm. eventually it will be seen, in my humble opinion, that what spirituality is concerned about, once it becomes a truly evolutionary emergent form of spirituality, that is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Because it's the latest thing. It's the deepest thing. And and actually, the irony is that science is all soul work, really. Mm. It's all ideas. Sure, it's 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 inspiration, it's it's intuition. It's studying what's below it, but from this conceptual place. So once you get that, then the whole, th- this is the, where the action is. Mm-hmm. That's, and, and for all of us, that's where the action is. Yeah, and the really good scientists who really advance their fields are able to sort of well, they know that. dip into a deep, intuitive, almost mystical level of understanding so and cognition. Many, so many report that. Yeah. I mean, one of the lovely so things from Einstein, then, imagination, already, yeah. that's where it comes from. Imagination, that's what I'm saying. Imagination is the realm through which we bring the new in. So even now... The best of science is a mystical endeavor. For sure. And even now, I'd say also the best of spirituality is a scientific endeavor because there are people who who approach spirituality in a real systematic way and uh, aren't content with loose and fuzzy thinking. Yeah. 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 
Cool, we got that figured out. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Phew. But it's that's early. It's cool to consider because we I think we're kind of contemplating the direction of the culture and of human knowledge and of you know how things might progress over the, the next several generations and, and so on. So I so the movement which I the way I describe it in the book as I remember is going, we've gone from this kind of really a kind of irrational mythic form of religion which had some depth to it and then science has come along and tried to replace that with a rational science and actually I think the new synthesis will be a rational spirituality Yes. and by rational there I just simply mean something which has good reasons behind it so I don't mean we can reduce spirituality to science, we can't, no. because you can't measure these things. You can't. The scientific method really applies primarily to physics, actually, and a little bit to biology. It's much, you know, it's much more rooted in the, in the repetitive. Anything which can be re- easily repeated, yeah. like physics, very good. Once you get onto psyche, it's not easy to repeat any of it, and you're in a different realm. But you can still believe something for a good reason, rather than because you just like the sound of it because it makes or sense some, because some book says or because some or book something. says or some tradition says yeah. that you've actually got a, 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 an understanding which goes actually that is the best way I can understand what I know mm-hmm. and what I experience for now one thing that um, I find hard to understand about how spirituality might become more scientific is just the fact that there are so many varieties of spiritual experience and it, it's so subjective and it's such a vast territory with so many variables. Exactly. I don't think it can be scientific in that sense. Maybe not. I think that's I mean, You'd like to think that if, if spirituality refers to a certain realm of, of deeper reality, that that should be able to be mapped out clearly and systematically and not just be a confused mess according to who, who's thinking of it. This, well, maybe it will. Maybe. Just the way maybe, we try to maybe, map out. Maybe it could be. Maybe as we go deeper, yeah. then we'll, we, we will find ways of doing that. But right now, the method which gets associated with science of just sort of basic experimental method is much more suited to the lower levels of emergence. And so really what we're saying is, look, the, the, the science which has really done well mm-hmm. is physics. Yeah, and even there, they only know some little tiny fraction of, of, course. of what, what's going yeah. on. And, and, the, and the further back they go, the more mysterious it becomes. But in that middle bit, they've done iPhones and, and yeah, spaceships. Yeah, there's been some practical applications. Yeah, I mean, amazing yeah. internets and just... A, GPS devices. Incredible, which, which, incredible. Yeah. And all of that has come from the understanding of physics. But for me, it's no, no surprise, because physics is the most primitive emergent level. It's still complex, but it's, it's the first thing to emerge. So it's, it's the first thing we'll come to understand. It's most fundamental. I mean, yeah. physics is talking about you know, fundamental forces exactly. that, that you know, become the, the symmetries break now, and once you, get more complex. The, the thing about the emergent view, whether in science or spirituality, is it's the opposite of the reductionist view. Uh-huh. The reductionist view goes, you t- to understand the greater thing, reduce it to its elements. Mm. So really, you know, Rick, I think I'm talking to you, but it's really just a pile of chemicals yeah. that are formed into this shape. Clearly... You don't understand anything, then. You know, that is just... You know, all forms of reductionism to me are, yeah. are nonsense. If I had a pile... Of, I had all the chemicals in a pile here and I had you, they would not be the same. Because the more emergent level has brought about information in a more emergent way. Yeah. So all those chemicals have been organized in a very ingenious yeah, way to yeah. do something. And then, well, and then like, you know, soul and to understand a car by taking all taking every last little piece apart and spreading them out on a field and you no longer understand what a car is or what it can do. Yeah. <laughs> so the emergent thing is the opposite of that reductionist thing. Yeah. So which means once you get that it's like well the more emergent levels are going to take more emergent 
ways to understand it. So no surprise, the first thing we got was physics. We're now making quite a lot of headway with biology, mm-hmm. and then maybe we're going to end up making that same headway with soul mm-hmm. and with the domain that we exist in, which is not made of matter. But you know, we'll we'll get there. Yeah, I was listening to some talk by a psychologist the other day, and he was kind of joking around about how diverse and and fragmented psychology is and there's so many different theories and approaches and ideas and he was sort of comparing that with you know what if chemists worked that way yeah. you know and there were like 20 different opinions as to what some chemical reaction is or something it would be considered ridiculous but how simple chemistry is compared to the vast complexity of psyche the level of complexity that we're dealing with at then no surprise to me at all that it's much you know we need a whole different approach if we're going to if we're going to deal with that more emergent level of reality that's why I think that this whole thing, I mean, that it's going to be a work in progress for, for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, forever. <laughs> I mean, a million years from now, if we don't manage to blow ourselves up, they'll still be sorting this stuff out, I think fine-tuning so. it. I, th- I think, I think yeah. so, because in that process, reality doesn't stay the same. It's not like, there's reality, now we understand it. It is itself emerging. Yeah. And as we understand it, it moves forward as well. Once we have new concepts in this conversation, we've created something new between us. That now exists. Yeah. If, it's a, if, it, if that was a big jump in cultural, if this affected the culture, <laughs> then the culture would be new. Yeah. And people would look back and go, oh yeah, that was the time when that took off. <laughs> and that's now part of cultural reality. What are some important points in here that we haven't pondered? Or have we oh, there's so many. No need to buy the book anymore? We've covered it pretty much? Or? Uh, well, there's, uh, there's the, 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 the story, the reason why. So I've tried to make the book as short and as concise as I can be. It's laid out in a very interesting form. You'll see there's no capital letters or... or I think you sent me a copy or, uh, of this. I think I might have it on my shelf. Yeah? I just haven't gotten around to reading it. Well, maybe I've inspired you to have a look. <laughs> I really hope that, it's, that, that things are laid out so clearly and in such a progressive way that people who do have a philosophical passion, like I have and like clearly you have, can actually engage with it and see what, see if there's something in there which can help them understand the process of life in a different way yeah. or not. Now, a lot of people listening to this might have already stopped listening, but those who, those who hung in there might be thinking, uh, yeah, they might be thinking well, these guys sound kind of complicated. I mean, they're really getting into some trippy stuff here, and, yeah. and I wonder if the book would be like that and I wouldn't be able to slog through it. No, I don't think you will find that. Yeah. I think I, I really pride myself in all my work, and this one especially, on getting it so that it's accessible to anyone and you can really understand it. Now, it only came out in April, but so far, the people that have told me have found that it, it, it's been like, oh, wow, well, now, of course, there may be hundreds of people that read it and, and hated it and never told me. <laughs> but uh, those that, the, the feedback I've had so far has really been pleasing. Because whether you agree or not, the job of, my, of me as an author is to plainly lay out the ideas. Mm. So I hope it will be a lot easier than our conversation because this is spontaneous and we've been moving between things and yeah, you know, around things book. and in and out, yeah. whereas the book is is laid out in a much more structured way so that you can get each section. It's very, very discreet, yeah. and you can make a journey through to the big ideas we've ended up like garden things. Yeah, you mentioned that a friend of yours sent a, a photo of this book on Ram Dass's bedside table. I just received it, That's yes. Cool. So it's, it's you on, didn't so, send it to him. Just no, so, I, so I'm hoping he's, uh, you know, he might be reading that. Ram Dass was a big influence on me when I was very young. So that's nice. Well, I, I'm really enjoying this, um, but my mind is getting to the point where I'm not thinking of new angles to discuss, and I certainly welcome you to bring out anything that you think is important that we haven't talked about. I think there will be endless things which are important we haven't yeah. talked about, but I think we've covered an awful lot of ground. It's been a really stimulating conversation, yeah. and it's been great. 
I knew we would um, at least resonate with what the, the essence of what we're trying to explore. And maybe the thing I want to say is just to tie it back to the thing we started with, the conversation we had this morning with Deepak and all of that. The reason that I've moved away from that position, I understand it so well because I was in it, yeah. is my, my deep feeling that this process of individuation of Tim and Rick is significant, that your life matters, everyone's life matters, and that through this something magnificent is happening. Not as an illusion, yeah. not as something to recover from, not as something to dis go back into the potentiality and leave yeah. it all behind, but actually the whole point that through this, God is coming into existence and we are part of that and we are coming into existence. Just that is enough. Yeah. We are forming ourselves every day. Every day we come into greater form because we are made of all we've been. So you are a soul forming, I am a soul forming, and... We are more formed now than when we started the conversation. You can't not do it. Mm. And that is the very process of what reality is. I interviewed a guy named Paul Mueller Ortega a month or two ago who is an expert in Kashmir Shaivism. And I believe he made the critique that a lot of the non-dual teachers, even respected ones like Ramana, had this sort of you know, reclusive nature which tended to incline them to just dismiss the, the relative world as insignificant and unimportant and I think that's not right. worthy of consideration. But Kashmir Shaivism has a much more embodied approach to yeah. spirituality in which they consider you know, the, the, the relative creation as extremely significant and not accidental and not just some kind of game that is being played, yeah. but that it's divine and it's pregnant with yeah. significance. Ooh, and, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, all that. Pregnant with significance. <laughs> See, I have no, I, I'm glad that there are people like Ramana Maharshi and these great men and women who specialize in that waking up to formlessness. Right. I'm so pleased. I just don't want it to be it. There's that, and then there's real embodiment, and we need both. And the spirit is exploring itself through every angle. But let's not have this idea that spirituality is all about that one thing. It's actually about the whole process, and that this is not, it's not an accident like science, hard-known science says, and it's not an illusion like hard-nosed spirituality says. It is a beautiful, significant process, billions of years old, of which we are the expression. And the, the thing with us is that with the creativity of the universe is arising in you and me as, as choice, as the ability to creatively decide what we will do, what we will say, how we will shape ourselves. Mm -hmm. We can form ourselves unconsciously or we can form ourselves consciously by, by how we choose to be in the world. And that is just not, that is so significant. Yeah. It's beautiful. It matters. And it's funny because when you talk that way to someone who has habituated themselves to thinking of the world is illusion and nothing is real and it's all just a concept and it's funny how the mind can condition itself to getting in a certain groove if you, if you keep thinking that way and it takes a while to get out of that groove but when you talk that way to such people they start rolling their eyes and they think well this guy is just conceding to Maya again he's getting back in the mud and it's hard to snap them out of that judgment I mean you and I both say that we've, we went through a phase like that and many people have. And, and actually, it's encouraging that... I, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who went through a phase like that and who then eventually come around to something more embodied like this. The great thing is, you know, we're at this Science and Non-Duality conference. I spoke at the very first one, 10 years ago, whatever mm -hmm. it was, and I've done a few more recently. 
when I, when I came here the first time, it was all like, get away from the self, you don't really exist. And I think I was probably the only guy going, uh, yeah, and this. <laughs> right. It's both. It's not one or the other, it's both. Yeah. And that was my whole passion. And, and, I, and what I found was that the audience went, yeah. They and the teachers it. went, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was put on these panels and all the things. We've done stuff about right. that as well. Now, more and more of the people themselves and the people that are teaching this, I think, have come round to go, no, 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 it is both, and this matters. Yeah. So I think it's a natural process mm-hmm. that you come back in. It's like the Ten Bull story. You come out, and it's just the emptiness, and then you come in. Yeah. And that's where you express the love in the world so that you end up with an evolutionary engaged spirituality which includes Mm non-duality but which takes you back to the raw human experience yeah I did a long interview with Adyashanti the other day, which will have been posted by the He's time an this example. Is posted. He's a good example. Yeah, and, and he has this model of awakening in the head, heart, and gut. And he said it's characteristic of the head awakening for people to have this detached, aloof, cool, witnessing thing where the, the world seems hardly real and illusory and unworthy of consideration. But then he said when the heart awakening begins to dawn, then you turn around and begin to appreciate the world much more fully. And then there's the gut awakening he described as, you know, getting into this sort of primordial pre-manifestation state, which doesn't negate any of the others, but that you begin to sort of sense creation from the vantage point of prior to its actual emergence. The idea being that it's not an either-or situation. One can incorporate all those perspectives and see them all as valid, each in their own realm. Sounds good to me. Cool, which it might be a good point to end on, which is the in- inclusiveness. I remember you were the first, I, I realize now that both and is a common term, but I think I was the fir- you were the first one I heard use that. I think so. It's really taken off. Yeah. That phrase, you know, when I started talking about parallelogical philosophy, both and rather than either, either or, and obviously it's been, I'm sure it's been around forever, but it has really, you know, I don't know if it's anything to do with me or whether it's just other, lots of people started using it, but that is the key for me, that the non, that if you want the oneness, it's not either this or this, yeah. it's not either one or many, it's both. So every, So this moment... This is the meeting of all the dualities. So it's yeah. the past and the possible, the one and the many. It is where everything is both and. Mm-hmm. That's its nature. And to me, that is such a comfortable place to be. Um, it's, it's so much easier, and, and everything fits into place so much more nicely if you have a, a kind of a, an all-inclusive, all-embracing perspective that, that accommodates all the different perspectives that people tend to polarize in. Yes. You know, whenever they do polarize that, that like that, it's to the exclusion of all the other perspectives. You yes. Know? But if you can just be a big enough basket to contain them all, then you can relax and everything makes sense. Yeah, I see how this fits, this fits, this fits, this fits. Because yeah. then you're always looking for the thing to add. Yeah. So that I find myself all the time going, yes, and And this. that, right. <laughs> yeah. And it, it actually mirrors, I think, more clearly the way creation actually is. Even using physics as a, as a metaphor, you have all these different laws of nature on different levels. None of them invalidate the others, but each, each is relevant and significant in its own domain. That's right. So what I'm doing is, li- is re- rising that up out of physics, mm-hmm. and then you've got the laws of biology, if you like, the way that functions, and then you've got the way soul functions. Yeah. And they're all interacting. And that's why your experience can be causal and magical right. at the same time. Simultaneously. Because those are all operating. Yep. I quoted some thing at breakfast that you got all excited about. It was a quote from Nisargadatta Maharaj, and I don't know what book it was in or anything else, but I, he was quoted as saying, somebody told me this, that the ability to appreciate 
paradox and ambiguity is an important characteristic of spiritual maturity. Well, I'm so pleased because he's been a big influence on me when I was younger. And the Soul Story book begins with ambiguity. We live in an ambiguous world and we need to understand that paradox and ambiguity. Good. Well, on that note, I was waiting for the right note to end this interview. Uh, That should do it. (laughs) So thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. It's really really a joy. I didn't know if I had the... um, the octane to have this conversation is kind of late. It's been an intense day, but boy, it really kind of gets me going to have a conversation like this with you. Me too. Good. So um, thank you to those who have hung in there with us. I uh, hope you found this stimulating. This obviously is part of an ongoing series. We'll keep doing them. There's going to be one or two more things produced at the conference here that I'll be putting up in the next week or so. And after that, it'll be back to the usual routine at home of interviewing people over Skype. So... If you would like to be notified every time a new interview is posted, just uh, sign up for the little email notification thing on thatgap.com. If you're not the type that likes to sit in front of videos for a couple hours, you probably won't have gotten to this point in this particular interview. But uh, there is, I should say, an audio podcast of this show that you can subscribe to in order to listen while you're commuting or whatever. And a number of other things if you just explore the menus on thatgap. you'll find some useful stuff that may appeal to you. So thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you for the next one. Thanks again, Tim. Thanks, Rick.